0: James Bond
1: Japanese proverbs say Bird never make nest in bear tree Just a slight stiffness coming on
2: Your cellos are studied various I'm just up here at Oxford Brushing up on a little Danish
1: You know what I can do with my little finger
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 26. This is the jocular podcast jam-packed with the jarring, jubilant, draw-dropping journeys of a juvenescent joker. Yes, join us as we jump into the joys of Jimmy, Jimbo, James Bond, 007. Thanks, everyone, for joining us in the cubbyhole this week. We very much hope you've been enjoying the show so far. Uh, Certainly from the growing number of uh, positive reviews, it certainly seems that way, so do keep those coming. You can catch us on all good podcasting websites and apps, including Podomatic, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can also show your support by giving us some likes and follows over on our social media accounts, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where you can share with us your thoughts on Bond. And of course, if you have a specific question you'd like to discuss, then do get in touch Roger Moore's Cubbyhole at gmail.com Now in our previous episode we discussed the the utter shambles that is Casino Royale 1967 the star-studded comedy that failed to deliver much comedy at all Needless to say the Cubbyhole hosting team were less than impressed with that unofficial entry into the Bond universe although we did have some fleeting moments of joy with Orson Welles's bombastic portrayal of Le Chiffre and some enjoyable cameos from British comedy legends such as Ronnie Corbett and Bernard Cribbins But this week we review the other unofficial Bond film, Kevin McClory's lifelong quest to get recognition for his uh, co-creation of Thunderball. Yes, it's 1983's Never Say Never Again, famously titled, of course, after Sean Connery vowed never to return as 007. With me to discuss, it's the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who has far too many free radicals in his system, probably from all the double bloody Marys with Worcestershire sauce. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? (laughs) Phil.
1: I'm very good, thank you Martin. Looking forward to uh, to another episode. Um, just to quickly run through um, again some of your shout-outs, so um, for our likes and follows on Facebook and Twitter, thank you to Jonathan Griffiths um, and to Eric Kriegler, uh, Richard Miller, Leo Electric Mantong and Frederic Pardaloo And I just want to finish on Shamir Raji got in touch again on Facebook. Um, obviously, at the time of recording, we learnt of the death of Geoffrey Palmer, um, the actor who played Admiral Roebuck in Tomorrow Never Dies. So he was um, mentioned that he, he really enjoyed that portrayal in the film. And he, like us, was, was very sad to hear of the death of Geoffrey of Palmer. So do please keep sending in your shout outs, um, your suggestions and your comments. We do always appreciate them.
0: What's your favourite ever Jeffrey Palmer moment? I think mine is his performance as the Doctor in uh, that episode of Faulty Towers, when he has that immortal line, I'm a Doctor, I'm a Doctor and I want my sausages.
1: I think, that, to, to be honest, for me, it's still Admiral Roebuck from Tomorrow Never Dies, just that sort of grumpy grandad style that he seems to portray in that. He, he seems to be very, um, you know, very disapproving of Bond's interference. So I'll always to remember him for that portrayal, I think.
2: I think for our younger viewers, I think he did appear in a more recent Doctor Who episode as well as the, the captain of the, the Titanic. Uh, so I quite like that performance. Fairly similar, actually, to his uh, Admiral Roebrook character.
0: Sorry, did, did we ever explore the, um, the, uh, the, the theory that um, Judi Dench and Jeffrey Palmer's characters in Tomorrow Never Dies are the same characters that they're playing in as time goes by?
1: I do remember this theory. I don't know if we've ever actually pursued it that much. Maybe we need to put this out to our sort of Facebook and Twitter fans to to see if they can shed any light on this, because it could be that you know there is a crossover between the characters.
0: It's actually Jeffrey Palmer who's in the bed with her uh, in that scene in Casino Royale when she's woken up and has to check the laptop.
1: That also becomes prophetic then in Skyfall because. Uh, m mentions that her husband has passed
2: away what are we saying that uh, as time goes by is before Skyfall, and then she she comes back out of retirement and, and goes up to skyfall <laughs> i
0: don't know now maybe it's just concurrent with it and that they are just married in real life they just don't betray that at work in tomorrow never dies but then they go home and they are just as they are in as time goes by
2: well it's an interesting fan theory i do have uh there is another interesting one related to uh to never sign ever again but i'm sure we'll uh, we'll get to that a little bit later so uh, and secondly we have the man who's got his own long range plans and when he walks in a room a woman can feel the heat it's adam how are you adam <laughs>
0: I'm very good. Thank you very much, Martin. I was very pleased, obviously, with recent events to be going back over this film, because I think any opportunity to see Connery um, as James Bond is ultimately a good one and one worth taking, uh, particularly, obviously, right now.
2: Indeed. So uh, let's go over. Let's find out what happens in this film. The film synopsis over to Adam and Alan.
0: Thank you. So, Never Say Never Again. Uh, This was produced by Jack Schwartzman and Kevin McClory, based on the ninth James Bond novel, Thunderball, which McClory and Ian Fleming and Jack Whittingham had all originally collaborated on together when it was a screenplay. Uh, Irving Kirshner, fresh from directing no less than The Empire Strikes Back, uh, comes on board to helm this film. And 21 years after first playing the role and 12 years after last playing it in Diamonds Are Forever, Sean Connery returns to the role of James Bond. So Never Say Never Again was released in December 1983. That's only five years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Taffin.
1: Then maybe you shouldn't be living here!
0: The film was made on a budget of $36 million, and it goes on to gross $160 million. It was made uh, considerably more expensively than Octopussy was earlier in the year, and Octopussy actually outgrossed it by nearly $30 million. So, to find out what happens in this unofficial Bond classic, let's hand over to Alan. q 007 netting titles and annoyingly catchy theme song. A heavily two paid old man Bond goes commando in a pointlessly elaborate training exercise before sneaking a deluxe taxpayer funded hamper into a detox clinic. Beluga caviar, quail's eggs, vodka, foie gras, Strasbourg. And bonking a naughty nurse and throwing his wee in Giant Haystack's face. Meanwhile, Bloody Blowers is nicking nukes again with the help of swivel eyed, weasel faced junkie Jack Patacci. If our demands are not met, we shall apply. REVENGE! And Bond goes to the Bahamas after meeting Cockney Q. I hope we're in for some gratuitous sex and violence. I hope so too. And, as if things weren't bad enough, Mr. Bean meets him there. I'm Nigel Small Fawcett. Would you like to go snorkelling one afternoon? Mr. Bond?! Bond bonks crazy leather-clad sex pest Fatima Blush in a grotty boat cabin. Going down, one should always be relaxed. Escapes an exploding shark. Avoids a blush bum by bonking that horny receptionist from The Spy Who Loved Me. We made the right decision. Your place or mine. Then follows snivelling yachtsman Max Largo to Nice and creepily eyes up his bimbo mistress Domino while giving her an impromptu ass massage. At a casino come arcade, Bond and Largo play Tron Risk. He ruins a tango by telling Domino her brothers had it right in the middle of the bloody dance, then uses a lesser exploding pen to off berserk rampant rabbit blush. You know, making love to Fatima was the greatest pleasure in your life. Well, to be honest, there was this girl in Philadelphia. Liar! In North Africa, Bond chills with some vultures before rescuing Domino from being sold to those lads from the end of the living daylights. Then hitches a submarine and rocket jetpack ride to blow up Largo's Indiana Jones base. Largo briefly escapes. Domino actually does something and shoots him. The bombs are inexplicably recovered and Mr. Bean falls into a swimming pool. Em sent me to plead for your return, Mr Bond. Never again. I bloody hope so. The end.
2: Thanks a lot, Adam and Alan. So... Thunder or Thunder, oh, sorry I mean uh, never say never again uh, when when this project was first announced apparently the, the title was uh, James Bond of the Secret Service but uh, that had to be scrapped and uh, apparently Orson awesome Welles was going to play the villain so that's the connection to the other unofficial Bond film Casino Royale 67 that we reviewed last week um, but uh, this one of course was the final performance by uh, Sir Sean Connery playing Bond uh, although he did give some vocal work to the uh, the Bond video game from Russia with Love. Uh, but uh, in terms of the actual film itself, I'd say this one is quite underwhelming. I think I, I agree with you, Adam. I think I was looking forward to watching a Connery film, uh, but it's perhaps a shame that uh, this was the first one uh, that I watched after his uh, his death. Um, I'd say that it, it kind of feels outdated. It feels very old right from the beginning, doesn't it? Even more so than the, the official 80s Bond adventures. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's related to the perhaps the camera that they use. I don't know what aspect ratio they're using, but it feels like a, a dreadful TV sitcom at times, doesn't it? Um, and the uh, the dreadful panning shots, uh, particularly the the opening scene, uh, seems a bit like uh, Father Ted, doesn't it? As it's uh, panning across the uh, the ground and the sea. <laughs> that's the the overall impression that I got. <laughs> that's that is brilliant. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so many awful awful things to say about the film i'll, uh, I'll pass over to you phil what, what were your observations
1: well looking back it, mean, when i obviously watched this just before recording it must be about 20 years since i watched this film I must have been about 11 or 12 the last time i watched it and it's it's just so silly i mean you, you get that opening sequence where you get that weird sort of neck curtain that's got the kind of 007 motif across it and it is, it's, it's just it seems to be filmed in sort of grubby vision. It's sort of you, you don't really know what camera they use, but it's it seems really dank and horrible. It's and it and then you get to the action sequence and it's it really is geriatric bond, you know. You're half expecting to be sponsored by Stanner half the, way, half the way through the film. It's you know, you, you kind of get this sense that Connery probably wasn't really in it for the for the chance to actually portray a decent Bond, he was just sort of in it for the paycheck. And and as you say, you know, I was looking forward to, it in the sense of going back to actually see Connery in a Bond film. But this this is one of the more forgettable Bond films, I think, in terms of the fact that, you know, it's 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 so bad. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, it, is a, it is a fascinating film, this one, because it's the only direct comparison we have to the official Eon-produced Bond films. I mean, they now have all the rights to all Bonds, so no one's ever going to mount a rival Bond production ever again. And the thing about this film is it really does prove just how good a producer Albert R. Broccoli and indeed Harry Saltzman uh, was in making those official Bond films, because this film does have Sean Connery, the best actor to ever play James Bond. It has the story of an actual Bond film. It is Thunderball all over again. And it has, of course, all the character archetypes, um, you know, the women, the villains that you would expect from a Bond film. But missing is everything else that you need to make Bond, Bond. The tone just is wildly all over the shop. The style is non-existent. There's no real sense of excitement at all. It doesn't feel particularly exotic or glamorous. And the timelessness that all great Bond films have is, is completely missing. And to go back on things you both said, this is a very, very 80s film. The soft focus photography, which, which is a clear visual misfire, is, is part of that as is all the hair and the clothes on show. There's a lot of big 80s hair um, and the music as well. I mean, it's, it's composed by Michel Legrand. I don't know what it is about French composers of music, but uh, between him and Eric Serra, they never do seem to do very well with Bond.
2: Yeah, It's interesting you pick up on the the music there, Adam, the score being pretty awful. I'd say that that's definitely one thing that I picked up on throughout the whole film was that the music was awful. It kind of hit you over the head. If it was a menacing scene, then they played some over-the-top menacing music. Uh, if it was supposed to be a love scene, you had the the jazz music in the background, uh, and just and beyond that as well, just the general sound effects. I thought were over-the-top. as I don't know whether they turned up the volume to eleven on all of the sound effects.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think in my notes, I put at one point when there was one of the lovemaking scenes, all I'd just written was extreme sax, because that's all it is. It's just just the extreme sound of a saxophone in the background. He's just like, why why have they decided to put this in?
0: It's interesting you mentioned the sound effects. I, I guess you're particularly talking about some of the punches that Sean Connery lands in this. And it is interesting that this screenplay is written by Lorenzo Semple Jr. He was most famous for writing the Batman TV series with Adam West. And there's very much that style running through this, that same sense of high camp. Every punch Connery seems to land on someone. Sounds like he's dropped an anvil on their head. And also the fact that there is legitimately a bomb strapped to a shark in this, just like in the Batman TV movie when he comes out of the water dangling on a helicopter's rope ladder and there is an exploding shark on his leg having to fight it off with the shark repellent bat spray.
2: Yeah, definitely a comic book feel, especially that uh, that scene that seems to be, I mean, it should be quite an exciting uh, scene where he's fighting against Count Lippy. Uh, but it just seems to drag on and on, doesn't it? Like, yeah, we get that this guy is quite invincible, but uh, but then he's taken down, of course, by by Bond's urine sample. So uh if anything says comic book, that does.
1: Well, it's also the fact that they seem to land punches on each other that kind of they don't seem to pack that much force, and yet they seem to be thrown over with quite a great deal of violence. So I'm, I'm not sure if the the kind of stunt choreography was missing as well. But it it seems to be the whole package is just very wayward.
0: Yeah, it is an attempt to do a kind of cartoony Jaws-style fight, that, isn't it? And interesting, they bring in as Count Lippy uh, Pat Roach, Bomber Roach, who um, Harrison Ford has to fight in every Indiana Jones film. Uh, Not that you'd know that, Phil. But yeah, it's an incredibly underwhelming end to that sequence, which goes on for ages and has that actually quite funny joke of all the old people cheering the TV and they're just fighting behind them although it's clearly Connery's stunt double. But, yeah, I mean, it just ends... You're expecting something like Spectre and the fight with Mr Hinks where he has to have some kind of last-minute deus ex machina. But, no, he just throws his own urine in uh, the guy's face and then he accidentally falls back on some glass. Was it
1: Moonraker where they have that massive glass fight in in Venice? All that glass gets smashed and nobody even drops a pint of blood. The guy falls backwards on two beakers and then that kills him instantly. It's just, you know, it's
0: it's interesting you mentioned moonraker because i have a little theory as to why the tone of this film is so all over the place because when they're first planning it at this point in earnest the previous bond film made was moonraker in 1979 which is obviously epic and quite funny and tongue-in-cheek and so i presume that at first they wanted to do this more like the real Thunderball, something that's a bit more intense and stripped back and a high style but then they're completely sideswiped by for your eyes only. And when we reviewed that film, we talked about the opening sequence with not Blofeld as a shot across the bow saying, you may have the rights to this character, but that's not going to stop us. But actually that film in general, of course, completely reverses the style of Moonraker and is more serious. It's played straighter. And so that I think maybe inadvertently completely confuses this film because suddenly to do what they maybe originally wanted to do, to take it seriously, is then directly competing against Bond. And what Charles K Feldman with the other Casino Royale got right is knowing that that's a bad idea because you can't take them on on a level playing field and win so perhaps that's why they started going a bit more tongue-in-cheek and a bit more silly with this one
2: yeah I think that's a distinct possibility and also the uh, I saw some trivia that apparently Kim Basinger had had either been asked or she was willing to appear in Moonraker as one of the the official Bond women Uh, then after turning it down she then decided to uh, to take this option um so yeah that means kind of a, a link between the the two films perhaps and uh it certainly shows that some of the actors at least in this film i don't know what they were expecting were they expecting a slapstick comedy or or did they want to make a serious bond film
1: i mean let's be honest this is a lot funnier than the original casino Royale. So you know that if they if they were aiming for slapstick then they certainly got it but um as adam said it's kind of it's all over the place in terms of the tone and the feel it's kind of even down to some of the, the kind of core characters that we would normally see in a Bond film. You know, you take M, in every single official Bond film, and um, even Robert Brown, even Robert Brown's M had a huge amount of dignity. In this one, M is the most annoying character I think I've ever come across in any film. He's just so irritated. just like, just shut up.
0: Yeah, you are absolutely right, Phil. M is... Just awful in this as played by Edward Fox. I mean, he plays him with the poshness of a minor royal, doesn't he? Like he is so egregiously and oppressively upper class in this to an extent that just makes him this caricature. Um, I mean, why even send a double O agent on this crazy high-stakes mission to recover actual nuclear bombs if he hates the double O program so much that he hasn't been using it for for various years? Why do you suddenly have to use them? And then that offer of um, you know, going to dinner in his club once this is all over i mean can you imagine any worse um prize for succeeding in a mission than having to spend any more than two minutes in the company of this m
2: do you
1: think that Connery's kind of playing it as panto though as well i mean he, he just seems to be not really there in a sense it's, you know we, there's often been claims that he was kind of not really bothered when he was in you and Live lived twice but this one he really can't be
2: asked. yeah i thought think looking back on this one i think i'd watched it one or two times as a child i remember a kind of connery having fun with this one but looking at it again i'm not sure whether he was the the little twinkle in his eye from diamonds are forever doesn't seem to be present does it (laughs)
0: But I think part of the problem, again, is, is the script. There's no sense of this Bond as being actually genuinely past it. You know, they're, because they're making a, a point of him being an older Bond in the way that they weren't specifically with Roger Moore and that he is coming back out of semi-retirement kind of into active service. There ought to be some jeopardy to that as they built into the latter Daniel Craig films, that idea of is he too old, is he past it, can he still do all of this? But actually the film and Connery's performance runs with the idea that it is all still completely effortless for him
2: yeah I feel like the the storyline is very lethargic isn't it all pretty much all of the scenes feel too long even if they're trying to be exciting Um, and I'd say that maybe similar to the music hits you over the head I think the the storyline even though it's so slow does also hit you over the head it seems to be mainly exposition doesn't it you find out things from the storyline based on just some random conversations rather than together with the character discovering things. So I'm thinking like specifically where uh, Jack Pitesh is pretending to be the president, isn't he? With the, the false eye and the, the computer system unnecessarily tells him all of the details. Okay, Mr. President, you've switched the warheads. Yeah, we knew that, that was already established. And we've also already watched Thunderball as well. Uh, so uh, those kind of things really annoyed me or like where the French contact is just telling Bond and Leiter that Domino is Jack's brother Rather than any kind of interesting plot, discovering that,
1: and they they really may have just called it, you know, Thunderball Revenge of Thunderball, if if they wanted to be that obvious about it, because it's just because it really is. It's just just like we we've all seen Thunderball. We know what happens in the film. If you're going to remake it, you don't need to literally you know, kind of signpost every single moment of the
0: plot. It's also quite badly directed, this film. I mean, Irving Kirshner has just directed The Empire Strikes Back, but make no mistake, he's a very nuts and bolts director. He does weirdly have a bit of a former relationship with Connery. He directed him in the 60s in a very strange film called A Fine Madness, which was kind of a comedy about... Connery punching women in the face but yet you just contrast this to Thunderball and to what Terence Young did with the direction of that who of course as we've said before is an incredibly stylish and, and visually intense director he injects real suspense and urgency into Thunderball I know you guys weren't such a big fan of that film as I am. But you feel the stakes being so high in that film. You understand the time pressure that Bond is under, that he has to solve this in, in a very quick amount of time and that every action he does is laced with danger and urgency. Whereas this one, yeah, like you say, it just feels like a very flippant frolic, even though there are two nuclear weapons in the hands of a terrorist organisation.
1: One of the weirdest bits as well, the fact that um, you know Maximilian Largo actually tells him where one of the nuclear weapons is, and then they just fight. It's like, yeah, they would defuse that one. It's like right, okay. So we're not we're not actually going to see you do any of that. They're just like, yeah, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's out of the way.
0: There you go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen a villain go quite so far as to say, oh yeah, it's just over there. Yeah, yeah. See if you can get to it. Uh, but then, how do they get to it? He only, he only says, yeah, it's in Washington DC. Where in Washington DC? You've got to search the entire city for it. Still.
2: Yeah, I'm amazed. Did Adam? Did you say in your introduction that this was more expensive to produce than Octopusy? I don't know, where did the budget go? All all those arcade machines, probably.
0: (laughs) I think there's also a weird thing about the chronology of this film, because we're sort of meant to infer that Connery is playing the Bond that he obviously played in the uh, originally-on films, and yet he strangely doesn't seem to recognise that all of this stuff has happened to him before. I mean, when he's first sent to Shrublands, he kind of has a knowing, oh, back to Shrublands, is You know, as if he has been there before in Thunderball, but then all of this stuff happens, and at no point does he just think to himself, Hang on, this is very similar to what happened back in 1965. I've, hang on, they've, they've stolen two... It's, it's the same names of people. I know exactly where these bombs are.
2: That would have been such a better film, wouldn't it, if, if he'd have just played it like that?
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, that's, it should have been Bond just has amnesia. Just like, I'm sure I recognise you from somewhere.
0: That'd have been the great running joke of the whole film, but everyone around him's like, How on earth were you able to do this? How did you solve that? How did you know it was him? How did you know where the bombs were? Well, it was a log or last time as well. Shall we talk a bit about uh, Largo because actually in in the contemporary reviews of this film uh pretty much only two things were praised about it one was seeing Connery back as Bond but also Klaus Maria Brandauer's performance as Max Largo What do you reckon guys do you think it's aged well do you think it's still one of the highlights of the film I think
1: it's one of the better parts of the film I mean he doesn't for me I still maintain that the the trail of Largo in Thunderball is better. You know, Max Largo in this, there is a sort of sinister element to him, and you know, there's that very sort of. There is actual tension when, obviously, is with Domino in the um in the dance room, and obviously he's given her the necklace, and then he just says to her, you know, I'll, I'll sort of slit your throat if you ever try and leave me. So there, there is a sort of sinister element there. There's a problem that sometimes affects the actual Bond films, where the villain doesn't really seem to have that much to do, I don't think. That scene where Bond and Largo are in the casino and they're doing that ridiculous domination game, that scene is completely pointless. That, they, they could have just had like a really awkward game of poker or something like that. They could have done anything, but they, they have to go to the sort of weird kind of advanced Atari game that seems to be in a casino for no apparent reason. It, they could have, literally, if they wanted to film up, they could have literally gone to an amusement arcade in Skegness and literally done it there. That's that's all they needed to do with that.
2: Yeah, they should have had a game of pitch and putt, perhaps, Phil. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I'd agree with you there, Phil. I think I, I mean, personally, if you remember your Thunderball review, I didn't really like Largo, um, and this one I actually quite like him in this film. I think he's kind of reminiscent of uh, Christatos in Fioras Only kind of got a similar vibe to him hasn't he in the character not very physically imposing uh, but you do get the sense certainly when Bond is deliberately trying to rile him uh, I think he plays it quite well when he's going mental with the uh, the ex in her little dent studio on the boat
0: yeah I'm probably somewhere between the two of you I, I think it is interesting but it is a much more human and psychologically nuanced um villain than we normally get in in sort of traditional Bond I do think there's a sort of lack of menace from him, even though he really nails those notes of being slimy and jealous and possessive. And you're right to point out that cut your throat line. It's so offhand and kind of charming, weirdly, in its delivery, but it is it is quite sort of creepy as well. And yet he, he just doesn't have the sense of menace or, or he's not imposing enough, I think, this character to really sell that idea of a love triangle between him and Bond and Domino, which was so central to the, the character drama of, of Thunderball. And Adolfo Celli, of course, we talked about at the time, he had that real sense of threat and malevolence. He was physically imposing. He was a match for Bond in many senses, the first dark incarnation of him whereas this Largo just can't really compete with Bond on that level which of course is evidenced in the fact that Bond can beat him at Tron risk or domination I don't think they should have played pitch and put I think they should have played a contemporary video game I think they should have done Space Invaders or Pong or Time Crisis or something like that
1: I think I think Pong would have been a brilliant one just like electrified Pong would
0: have been hilarious we mentioned in Tomorrow Never Dies I had the theory that Bond's secret wealth comes from he's actually an incredibly good e-gamer Maybe this was the origin of that. He was like, well, oh, I was very good at that uh, video game I tried against uh, Largo. Maybe I should uh, start monetizing this.
2: He does pick it up quite easily, doesn't he? And I, d- I did enjoy the line where kind of Bond loses the first two games, doesn't he? And then increases the stakes at the end. And then right at the end of that scene, Connery says, I, I never lose. But like, you just lost the first two games, mate. You-, you had to play it again.
0: Oh, imagine if they'd have just been playing GoldenEye uh, multiplayer. <laughs> well, hang on, I assume to be in this game. Is that, that odd job you put odd job in this game? How did you know about him?
1: I don't know about you guys, but one of the kind of standout moments for me in this film is the uh, these kind of henchwoman Fatima Blush, um, played by I believe Barbara Carrera. For me, one of the great kind of henchwomen, I think, of any film. You know, the the way it's played for, it's one of the minor shining points of this film the fact that she's so kind of bombastic and, and ridiculous and, and the fact that, you know, she takes so much delight in trying to to kind of assassinate Bond and kind of any adversary. What do you guys think? Do you think that she
2: was an asset to this film? Yeah, I really loved, uh, loved Barbara Carrera's portrayal of this character. Um, I think she, she was nominated actually for a golden globe for this performance. And uh, yeah, I'd, uh, I'd go along with that. I think that, uh, Kind of similar to uh, a Xenia Onotok character, isn't she? She does have that kind of uh, the link between her her sexual desires and uh, and killing bond uh, when she, her death scene with the the pen. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, overall I'm quite impressed with uh, with her portrayal. Um, and I personally, I would have liked to see her in a in an actual official Bond film. I think she she turned down the role in Octopussy, uh, because she wanted to work with Connery so much.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. That is interesting. Um, Yeah, I I think she is the absolute star of this film, a real highlight. I love every scene that she's in. I think she quite literally dances off with the film, certainly when she's prancing down those steps after a domination risk. She just has a sort of raunchy, sadistic humour that she injects throughout everything in this film. She's slightly manic as well. You're, you're absolutely right, Martin. She absolutely anticipates Zenya on a top.
1: I think it's also the fact that there is, there is quite a sense of menace to her as well. You know, the, the scene where she's with Jack Batachi in, in the Shrublands um, health clinic. And, you know, she's, she's being quite violent with him. You know, she's, she's very physically imposing in that sense. And then she can sort of reign that sense of terror over him. And then again, when you see where she causes him to crash the car,
2: She really doubled down on the death, didn't she? Like she throws the snake in to make sure he crashes. And then after he's crashed and presumably is dead anyway, she then puts a bomb in the car and explodes it. I mean, that kind of uh, diligence perhaps should have been used for 007.
0: She's also got a little bit of Sophie Marceau's Electra King in terms of the the layers of control of the character gradually being stripped away throughout the film to release the inner mania. Certainly in that final confrontation, she's so unhinged and off the leash suddenly. There's that kind of seediness and and a sense of 007 being sexually compromised from from Russia with Love, although played much more for laughs here and tongue-in-cheek humour. But she really sells that idea, but now she's not even doing her job as a henchwoman anymore. She's just gone completely nuts. Guess where you gathered the first one.
2: Well, in view of your hatred of man.
0: Liar! You know that making love to Fatima was the greatest pleasure of your life? Well, to be perfectly honest, there was this girl in Philadelphia. Shut up!
1: I am the best. Yes. Yes, you're right. In fact, I was going to put you in my memoirs as number one. There are elements of this where it kind of strays into a, a kind of a spoof film. It's like a kind of naked gun style film where where there's numerous attempts to kill Bond. You know, we've mentioned the kind of killer sharks that have seemed to have to be radio controlled that can obviously find his homing beacon. And, then you know, obviously she's got the, the bomb in the hotel room and also we get that great line of you know i'm glad i chose your room over mine
2: uh, some people have picked up on the the movie mistake that uh, nigel Small Fawcett is able to call the room of his lover rather than because uh, surely he would call bond's room wouldn't he but i think that Small Fawcett is just an excellent agent whose his detective work has led him to that room and uh, one of the uh, the fan theories that i was going to mention was that some people suggests that this is the same character as Johnny English that Rowan Atkinson plays later. And that Johnny English is just kind of a code name and kind of portraying the later career of Nigel Small So I'd like to think that's true. And I do like some people have, uh, I think someone's created a Nigel Small account on Instagram. So I like that there's this kind of recognition of these very, very minor characters.
0: I mean, he is, he is unfortunately underused in this film, is Rowan Atkinson as small force, isn't he? I mean, you just sort of wanted him to keep cropping up as the guy who is just constantly and ineptly following in Bond's wake and is always like two steps behind. And presumably, he just used his government house pull to sort of work out from the receptionist where Bond was. I mean, he's in such a striking pair of dungarees at this point that they must surely have known who he was with and what room she was staying in, so would have known exactly where to patch him through to. He also has one of the genuine funny lines in the film, doesn't he, when uh, Bond asks uh, Small Faucet about Largo. And I think Small it just says something like, oh, well, yes, he's very charming. I mean, you know, foreign, but charming.
1: Yeah, I mean, Rowan Atkinson plays that sort of stiff upper class, you know, posh Brit to a T in this. And it's it's just, and it's, and it's right from the off the, you know, when he's running across the the courtyard, he's going like, Russell Bond, Russell Bond. Nigel Small Faucet. British Embassy, Nassau. How would you do, Nigel? Sorry I'm late. But as you're one of these undercover Johnnies, I took the precaution of not being followed. And
0: that's why you shouted my name across the harbour. Oh, God, did I?
1: Oh, I'm
2: sorry. Damn! Damn!
0: I think actually the allies of Bond in this film are handled reasonably well because of course we've also got Cockney Q who's kind of quite funny and and you're sort of a little bit like wow he seems way too kind of a proletarian to be in this position particularly with that incredibly aristocratic M as well but he's a nice contrast to Desmond Llewellyn who was as you pointed out many times Phil he was playing the character as as a little bit posher and a little bit more upper class but also there's a decent Felix Leiter in this There's, there's an action man Felix Leiter he's along for the ride at the end he's doing some action he's on a jetpack he's um pretending to be a weird frenchman on a bike he's he's doing lots
1: yeah i must admit, felix Leiter is actually much more active in this film and i think it does them credit the fact that he you know he's he's actually killing the uh the henchman at the end you know with the final scenes and he is he is actually helpful for bond in terms, instead of being a hindrance that we often see in the uh in the official bomb particularly particularly um, Diamonds Are Forever, when it just seems to get in the way half the time. So,
0: I mean, in the, the blush death scene that we talked about earlier, he does do a bit of classic Felix of revealing he was just outside the entire time and was kind of just waiting to see if Bond really needed any help before racing in. And you think, well, how much later were you going to leave this? She was literally training the gun on him. Had that exploding pen been a few seconds later, you'd have been just running into his corpse.
1: One of the kind of key characters from original Thunderball, of course, was um, Domino. What do you guys think? Do we think this is uh, an equal portrayal from what we saw in Thunderball or do we think it's slightly weaker?
0: No, it's 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 a much weaker portrayal for me. I mean, this Domino is much closer, almost to BB doll, uh, talking for your eyes only. Um, she's much more of a sort of very young, I guess, sort of slightly clueless, spoiled socialite, rather than what Claudine Auger was doing as Domino in Thunderball, which was she knows she's a kept woman, but there was a certain kind of froideur and a sort of spiky resignation to that. There's a sort of undercurrent of fear of Largo, but she plays it with a little bit more strength, and I don't think Basinger is really given the room by the script to do that i mean she's largely just lounging about either getting massages or in an, an incredibly see-through pink aerobics outfit so she's kind of presented as a kind of sexual object and so we don't get the, the dramatic arc of the character which allows her to slowly build to the moment where she takes revenge on largo
2: yeah i mean i don't think she does particularly badly i mean there are some moments of overacting i feel when she finds out that Bond doesn't work at the uh, the sauna place, uh, and by the way, how awful does Connery look in that turtleneck? Complete contrast to the uh, the beautiful women who are <laughs> lounging around at that, that establishment. But uh, yeah, Kim Basinger, I think uh, yeah, I agree with you, Adam. I think the the plot, the storyline, the script does not help her at all, really, to give any kind of uh, decent performance. But I get it's interesting that this this kind of did launch her career in the end. So. Uh, quite an odd turn of events
0: yeah on the turtleneck there is that weird running joke in that uh, whole bathhouse scene where connery just sort of walks towards the camera and despite being in the worst turtleneck in the world despite being extremely heavily toupee and despite being quite old, all of these incredibly attractive young bikini clad women are just staring thirstily at him. And even actually Basinger's reaction afterwards, she's initially shocked and appalled that this total chance just massaged her. But then afterwards she has a little smile to herself. So she's like, oh, well, you know, he's, he was hot, so it's fine. Yeah, I was
1: say, in that turtleneck, like, he literally looks like the janitor. He just looks like he's turned up to clean one of the sauna pools or something like that. it looks awful. But for me, I think that with just performance, I do agree, I don't think she was particularly given that much to work with. But also the bit that I find really cringeworthy is that tango scene in, in the casino and it's just so, so and so wooden, the way that they they deliver it. And then Bond just, just casually says, oh, yeah, by the way, your brother's dead. And it's just like, oh, OK,
0: fine. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and they somehow just keep tangoing like you would. I mean, if you were told of a sibling's death in the middle of a dance, you would not keep on dancing at all. And that's a missed opportunity as well. You don't sense the closeness between her and her brother. That's built into the storyline and the, the the scenes of Thunderball much more effectively.
2: Yeah, it might make those uh, those shows like uh, Strictly Come Dancing or Dancing with the Stars might be more interesting if that uh, if the stars are given dreadful news as they're dancing and they have to continue going.
1: <laughs> it would have made more sense if they were on the boat, you know, obviously when Connery actually lands and if, if it had been kind of, you know, a, a, an interaction between them when they're actually in the, the dance studio, that might have been a better way to reveal it. And then obviously there's... There's payoff because, you know, Domino is then feeling that she has to take her revenge.
0: But then again, in that dance studio, we have that incredibly awkward moment when he's trying to rile up Largo and kind of just goes, right. Now, what's going to happen is I'm going to kiss you and you're going to look like you're enjoying it. I mean, that's a full on return to pussy galore in the barn, isn't it? And again,
1: this is going back to this, this film really hasn't aged well at all in terms of fashion or in terms of stylization,
0: Just in terms, Philip, the dodgy effects, um, there's also, of course, the maddest horse jump in film history. I mean, how on earth you'd ever survive that? And then the close-up of Connery on the horse going over it is so comedy. Like, he's never looked that bad before. I mean, I mean, the jock-strapping Zardoz is one thing, but he's never looked that embarrassing in a film. <laughs>
1: I was going to bring that up actually, that is probably for, for, because, simply because it's so bad, that is probably my favourite moment of this film because it's so stupid. Just a bit, It be, because it becomes full Monty Python, you know, you get this sense that, you know, Bond has rescued Domino, but no, you get this weird sort of early CGI mode where it sort of launches down the side of the castle. And then we're led to believe that the horse is perfectly fine as it lands in the water. And then it gets even more ridiculous because then Felix Lighter blows the castle to pieces with his submarine that just, could, just sort of emerges out of
2: nowhere. Yeah, they should have just attached a, a kite perhaps to the horse and gone kite surfing down there. That would have uh, <laughs> just died another day.
0: It. Yeah, that cutaway just to prove the horse was okay was amazing because you are just thinking, yeah, that horse is dead. Christopher Walken needed to be on that horse when he went off the Golden Gate Bridge. He'd have been fine afterwards.
2: Yeah, surprise! So they could have had a horse on that blimp. I mean, they had the Acne acne Dynamite, didn't they? They should have could have just had a horse in the safe as well.
0: Well, of course, he owned plenty of horses, so he might as well have just brought one everywhere.
1: I've just got visions of a horse with a jetpack. Now, that's that's what they should have had. It should have just been instead of using it for the uh, for lighter and Bond to go across the sea, they should have just had jetpacks for the three of them.
0: Yeah, that line just before the final action sequence when it cuts back to Blofeld for the first time in about two hours and he just says, there is nothing that can stop us now. And you think, no, flying horse on a jetpack with Sean Connery riding it, that'll stop you.
2: Yeah, it is. It's kind of early Elliot Carver, isn't it? He? He's got his own FaceTime Zoom call on the, uh, on the big wall.
0: And of course, uh, when he does the video call to the United Nations or NATO or whatever, the cat is the only thing that you see. Hence, the cat is Blofeld. I love how in the end of that video as well, he feels it necessary to put in a clip of a nuclear bomb exploding just to sort of bring home to everyone what might happen. It's like they know, they know what a nuclear bomb is and what it does. You don't need the stock footage.
1: Well, again, this kind of goes back to the sense that there is no subtlety to this film. It's, it's almost like they thought, well, maybe not everyone knows what a nuclear bomb looks like. So we better just put one in exploding just so they're aware of it.
0: He is a curiously disappointing Blofeld, is Max von Sudorf, isn't he? I mean, considering he's just played Ming the Merciless and he's from, you know, things like the Seventh Seal and the Exorcist, for him to have gone down the, I'll just play it as a very charming European aristocrat, you know, a, a kind of the dodginess, the shiftiness of a Jaguar driver rather than a crazed supervillain.
2: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm willing to go along with your theory about the cat here, Adam, because the cat does more acting than, than Blofeld.
0: The cat does that great reaction as well, doesn't it? Doesn't it? When it sees the nuclear bomb or just before it, it does a sort of startled look down the lens, almost like the cat's thinking, Jesus Christ!
1: What do you guys think of the, the kind of the set piece of, of how the film finishes? Do you think that it's it's one of the better moments or do you think it kind of falls a bit flat?
2: Well, yeah, I think as we've said, I think it's good that we've got the introduction of Felix actually being useful for once and we've got the uh, decent explosions as well happening. Uh, but I think the, uh, the overall impact of that ending should be about Domino taking her revenge, shouldn't it? And uh, as we've mentioned, we don't really get that sense. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, in terms of the action, I think it's fairly decent, maybe not as good as thunderball but uh but yeah for me it wasn't it wasn't a particularly great ending and then the of course connery's wink at the end
0: oh yeah when mr bean goes in the swimming pool It's interesting, this ending, because it ties together a couple of points from earlier in that um, it it does mean the way that they've constructed this Indiana Jones, very clearly Indiana Jones inspired set piece. It means there's a lot less underwater action, which although I quite liked it in Thunderbolt, I know you guys got a little bit weary of it. The fact that there's less underwater business does go back to your point from earlier, Martin, about the fact that the film is not showing you anything that's happening. It's not telling the story visually, just exposition is being used to sort of fill in the blanks, whereas actually part of the reason for all the underwater stuff in the original Thunderbolt is to show you all of that happening. Um, I mean, I, I just sort of prefer of all of it, um, Sean Connery's reaction when he's not served his uh, vodka martini at five. I mean, he looks like he's going to punch her in the face. Also, Vio's discrepancy between the two that she's having a nice brisk swimming in the swimming pool and he's literally just lounging there in a rock pool jacuzzi.
2: Even though not much earlier, he's managed to kick a massive stone head into the uh, the pool below, into the tears of Allah.
0: When he says, oh, never again, never doing that again, you'd, you'd be forgiven for thinking it really took it out of him that he nearly died numerous times in all this. He didn't. He kind of breezed through the whole thing. He never looked in a rush. He was never in any trouble.
1: Yeah, he almost seems to be taking it a bit of a stroll, really, when, he's, when you consider the stakes as well, the fact there's still a nuclear weapon to be found and, you know, they're still going to try and disarm it.
0: Is he really winking at the camera or is the camera just in the way and he's actually winking at Nigel Smallforce it in the pool? You know, just sort of give him Basinger a kiss and then a little wink to Nigel. You'll never get something like
2: this. Well, the last yes. laugh is on him, though, if he does become Johnny English later. <laughs> yeah, apparently uh, Connery didn't want the winking at the end. His idea for the ending was to have Sir Roger Moore come into the end of the film, brush past him, and then Moore was going to deliver the line of uh, "Never say never again" with a, I guess, with a cheeky eyebrow raise rather than a wink. Can you swim? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so should we head over now to the cars and gadgets and? and motorbike section, I guess, for this film. Over to you, Phil.
1: Yes, thanks very much, Martin. So a lot of interesting cars um, to go through in this film, particularly because of the fact that um, they seem to be mostly driven actually by the villains. Uh, you know, you look at Fatima Blush uh, throughout the film, seems to have quite an exotic uh, tasting cars. Uh, but we'll go back to, to kind of the early stages of the film. So um, particularly with James Bond, when we first see him arrive um, at the Shrublands, Hells Clinic. He arrives in a a quite a nice 1937 Bentley four and a quarter liter, uh, what's known as a Gurney Nutting uh, drophead coupe. So, um, so this would have been a coach built um, Bentley from the 1930s. So kind of. Going back to sort of the the style of things like From Russia would love the Bentley that we see in that film as well. For most people, the, the vehicle that we all remember Bond using in this film is the um the so-called rocket bike, the Yamaha XJ650 Turbo. So this it didn't actually really have a huge number of gadgets. There was only sort of two or three. You get the sense that they were probably running out of budget to be able to um to to progress these um, gadgets. But obviously there is still a Q branch um. Influence on the motorcycle, so it's got tire protectors, which are used against the, um, the Chevrolet Camaro and the uh, the Peugeot, and it's also got um, a rear smoke screen and rocket launchers. But of course, we all remember it for that great stunt where it jumps across the uh, the harbour with the the rocket power. So moving on to uh, some of the other cars, we we'll see Fatima Blush actually has quite a. A wide mix of different cars. She starts out in a 1973 Mercedes-Benz SL. This of course is used to um, assist in the murder of Jack Potacci in his Ford Cortina Mark V. But the car that we kind of probably all remember her for is um, seen later in the film. Now, the 80s were a time of uh, most car manufacturers were kind of going turbo charging crazy. So one of the kind of iconic cars of this era was the Renault R5 Turbo, um, which we see her use later in the film. This was a mid-engine turbocharged um, kind of rally car, effectively, built for tarmac rallying predominantly. And it really was kind of a rally car for the road. You know, it was one of the iconic cars of the 80s. So that's a really quick run through of, of some of the cars that we use. We also get quite an interesting mix of gadgets. So we see the... Uh, we also, obviously, as we've mentioned already, the exploding pen gun, which Bond uses. Interestingly enough, it, we get a return to the Union Jack motif, so obviously references of uh, things like the Spy Who Loved Me. There's also an instant use of the Rolex wristwatch, which has the laser cutter. So this is kind of um, heralding what we'd see in GoldenEye and Tomorrow Never Dies with the uh, laser device on that wristwatch as well that's kind of a very quick run through of the uh, the kind of cars and gadgets
0: that we see in the film. Phil, you forgot to mention the single most important accoutrement Bond has in the film, the toupee. I mean, it's a work of art, isn't it, that thing?
1: I mean, can we class that as a gadget? I, th- I think it's a fashion statement, certainly. I mean, the, the toupee is, is definitely... It has its place in the film, but it's, uh, um, you know, you, you always get this sense that there was probably an outtake where there was a gust of wind and it probably blew off. You know, there's probably a, some some element of that. So you know, I, I, w- I was sort of glossing over the toupee as a, as a proper gadget.
2: It wasn't that one of your early quizzes, Phil, in, our, in an early review you asked us to name all of the gadgets. I, I call for a recount if, uh, if we're counting the toupee.
1: <laughs> this is degenerating into the US election era. We're just going to end
0: up with recounts in different quizzes. No, I think that when we do the next quiz, as soon as I go ahead, we should just stop counting.
2: OK, so we'll move over now to buy the book. Over to you, Adam.
1: Why don't you acquaint yourself the manuals? you be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours.
0: Just took a few seconds, Q. Thank you very much. So the book, of course, in question here is Thunderball, the ninth James Bond novel. Uh, The basic plot of um, this film and Thunderball is the same, although it's a much less faithful adaptation of the novel than the Eon Productions film. So there've been a few sort of key name changes of various characters. Uh, We no longer have an Emilio Largo, but a Maximilian Largo. Uh, The Disco Volante's translated name to English, the Flying Saucer is the one used for Largo's yacht. Um, But some names have actually been preserved from the original novels. So uh, the surname Patachi of uh, Jack and Domino is is that in the novel, not the Deval, which uh, the Eon film went for. Um, There is a change, a major change in the locations used. In the novel, we only go to Shrublands and then the Bahamas. Uh, In this, of course, we've expanded that out quite substantially to uh, Nice in the south of France and to North Africa. The character of Fatima Blush goes back to McClory's original screenplay, predating Fleming's novel, in which she um, was sort of part of a airplane full of celebrities which crash lands, uh, an original plot line before they turn to the theft of nuclear warheads. The reason for which Bond is sent to Shrublands is closer to the novel than it is to the previous film, i.e. he's out of shape, he's uh, drinking and eating and smoking too much, uh, as opposed to he's been injured in a conflict with a Spectre agent. Um, The process of hijacking the nuclear bombs has been changed from the book. Um, Obviously, in this instance, the eye surgery means that uh, Jack Potacci can impersonate the president rather than You know, mid flight, he is able to take over the plane and crash land it. Um, The idea of Felix Leiter being more active is actually uh, a direct influence of the novel in that um, Leiter has returned to the CIA from the Pinkerton's detective, such as the weight of the crisis, uh, and is much more of an action hero going through the story. And the finale actually is closer to the novel than the original Thunderbolt film. The idea that uh, it's a submarine which is chasing the forces of Largo is a direct lift from the book, as is the idea that the final confrontation with Largo happens after the underwater battle and still beneath the seas as opposed to on the yacht. In this film, uh, Bond and Domino meet much later than they do in the novel, uh, and indeed in the previous film, where they meet pretty much as soon as Bond goes to the Bahamas. Uh, And so what's also cut in this adaptation is the idea of Domino becoming a spy for Bond and being tortured by Largo after learning of her brother's death, which of course, as we've said, means that that final revenge she takes perhaps loses some of its dramatic weight.
2: OK, thanks a lot, uh, Adam. So uh, it's interesting, McClory. do you think uh, if he was still alive today, would he still be trying to make Thunderball?
0: Well, he was constantly trying to remake Thunderball. There was, there was another idea for another remake of Thunderball called Warhead, which he was um, trying to get off the ground in the late 1980s. And that was going to be, I think, with Timothy Dalton uh liam neeson i think then came into the the frame for playing bond in that but uh, it it sadly wasn't to be it's i mean it's you know one does feel for mcclory i mean having to spend the entirety of your life constantly trying to remake thunderball does rather sound like some kind of purgatorial sisyphean task doesn't it
2: okay so we'll move on to my segment now which is that's not okay anymore So I guess uh, similar to the previous unofficial entry into the, the Bond universe, Casino Royale 67, probably not not that good at the actual time. Uh, and looking back on it, as we said, it is very, very dated. It is a very 1980s film, all of the, uh, the video games that we see and uh, just the, the tonal mismatch, of course, of the whole film quite raunchy in places much more raunchy and gratuitous than the the actual Bond series itself and uh, I, I guess that the main issue similar to Thunderball actually in this film uh, the the film got into some trouble with animal rights groups because of that horse scene uh, falling off the cliff I'm not sure whether the horse was actually injured I think before the fall it does kind of uh, Connery takes hold of the horse doesn't he and it kind of falls to the ground in a in an uncomfortable manner uh, so it did It uh, provoked some anger from animal rights groups and it, uh, it persuaded other filmmakers to have a disclaimer at the beginning or the end of their films after this one after 1983 it's made clear that the the, the animals are not harmed in the making of the film and also i guess you could extend that to the other sharks as well thunderball got into some issues with the uh, shark rights and uh, this one also uses the uh, the sharks and they do kind of look uncomfortable under that uh, netting Uh, that's that's pretty much all i got so i don't know if uh, adam and phil do you want to add anything
0: i guess just on the enhanced raunchiness of the film there is a lot of connery with his top off um and and i guess it's sort of partly proving that whole thing of he's still got Body, he's still the best Sean is still sexy uh, and I think he did actually sue um, a newspaper who claimed that he'd, he'd lost that he'd put on rather a lot of weight and that he wasn't the man he used to be but he sued them because apparently at this point in time his waistline was exactly the same measurement as when he made Dr. No and so perhaps part of the sauciness is just Connery trying to prove that point that you know he looks as good now as he did 20 years ago even though manifestly he doesn't and there are definite scenes when kind of like in diamonds are forever when his top's off there's a very definite look of him sucking that gut in.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably one of the issues. I think for me, it's that scene between Bond and Domino where he's he's giving that massage. I know we've already mentioned it in uh, in the podcast, but... Yeah, that's that's pretty uncomfortable, really. It's, it's not a great, uh, great moment in the film and, and probably didn't need to be included.
2: Yeah, that, that probably does. I should have mentioned that in the actual segment, shouldn't I? The uh, those ridiculous faces and the, the love scenes between Fatima Blush and Bond. Almost as awkward as Die Another Day. I'm not sure it's it's closely run thing, isn't it, between those two?
0: Well, at least we don't have to um, put up with seeing Sean Connery arrive in, in the way that we did with Pierce Brosnan in Die Another Day. <laughs>
2: So uh, over to uh, the Q branch for this week. So uh, Phil, what questions do we have?
0: Answer my questions quietly, but clearly.
2: Yeah, thanks very much, Martin. So
1: um, a lot of people have been getting in touch with us on our social media channels. So uh, the first one for all of us is from Don from Facebook. Um, what is kind of our opinion that 007 as a number may be passed over to a woman for the next film?
0: So there are kind of two parts to this question. Uh, the, the first thing is is assuming it's correct. Uh, Lashana Lynch's character in uh, No Time to Die is actually going to be 007, i.e. when Bond retired at the end of Spectre, they hand the code number onto another agent. And i think. that's absolutely great i think that's a really funny cheeky way to have a black female 007 but not recast james bond himself as a woman Uh, so i think that's actually a really funny clever idea i have heard word on the street that what's going to happen at the end of no time to die is that actually daniel craig as james bond is going to remain as a kind of recurring older mentor style character but the central hero of the Bond films going forward is going to be Lashana Lynch as the new not-James Bond 007. Now, obviously, I've no idea if that's true, if that's going to happen or not. Um, if that happens, it is going to be very odd, you know, that the Bond franchise's central character is not going to be James Bond himself, but just another 007 I don't quite know how that's going to work. I, I think that'd be a risky thing to do. A lot of people probably have problems with it.
2: Yeah, I think the the theory of that doesn't sound great, but again, the execution could be could be very good. I mean, the opposite has happened where we've got a very good idea in theory that's executed very poorly. <laughs> Die another day. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be against that. I'm not sure. I don't think I'd be against it. And uh, I guess it fits with Daniel Craig is very close, isn't he, with the the producers at Eon. So it makes it does kind of make sense that he might want to stay on in some capacity. But
0: when we talked of Another Day, we talked a little about Halle Berry as Jinx and just the fact that that was going to be a spin-off film. But actually, I think the idea of having a sort of Winter Olympics Bond who maybe is just a female agent or a female James Bond or a female 007 running in tandem with the actual James Bond is probably a good way for them to have their cake and eat it. You know, you're sort of continuing to make classic trad James Bond films, but then you've got this other James Bond or this other 007 in their own films, which perhaps allows you to take a few more artistic risks.
1: Yeah, I think certainly it's a good idea to have that. I'm, you know, it it makes me kind of, um, you know, enthusiastic for, for what they'll do with No Time to Die. I think it kind of, I think it is a really good thought process for them to to do. that. It is quite a progressive way to to move the franchise on as well. Okay, so that was our first question. So moving on to a question from Pat Martimucci. So he was quite interested to know, um, did we collect any of the sort of toys or kind of bond memorabilia growing up or, you know, the kind of collectibles? Um, And what did
0: we have? In terms of toys, I didn't actually have that many. I had lots of Bond stuff, but it was mostly books and magazines and kind of other little bits and pieces rather than toys. I did have a little toy, um, Aston Martin, like a little mini, which sort of, you know, fired an actual ejector seat. But what I used to have was a lot of action men. And I used to just reenact bits from the Bond films with the action men when I was very young. So there was like one favourite who looked a bit like Pierce Brosnan at the time, who was always James Bond. Uh, but then he broke, so sort of, you know, in same as the film. I had to recast uh, Bond as a different action man
2: yeah I think I, I have a disappointing answer as well I think I'm pretty much the same Adam my books and action men were my go-tos as a child I don't, I don't remember having any Bond specific memorabilia
0: I guess the video games actually as well because I had The World is, is Not Enough and I went on GoldenEye a few times I know you had Tomorrow Never Dies Martin
2: I did which I finally managed to complete 20 years later that bloody Hanoi level awful
1: for for me, it was a video games as well, actually. But for me, it was kind of I've I've, I've always collected model cars, and I had a lot of the uh, the James Bond kind of model cars, going right back to the sort of the, the Goldfinger DB five through to things like the sort of Dying of the Day cars and the Rise Only, and and you know all sorts of different ones, which I've I've now um, actually sold on. But no, that was I think Bond really helped me to get into my interest of cars. Actually, I think it's quite a nice little segue into to my interest of of why I love cars so much you know these sort of gadget laden you know expensive exotic vehicles that Bond seems to be treated to each time and then you know the fact you can own them in sort of model or you know toy form was always a really great it was a great treat really you know it was something that you kind of always cherish those memories, I think. So it's, it's always something nice that, as Bond fans, I think we can enjoy. So so just to finish off this week, uh, kind of our final question came through on Twitter. So what is your favourite Sean Connery line from, I guess from any film, really? But, I mean, I, I'd say personally from a Bond
2: film. It has to be from our theme tune. I think um, Bird Never Make Nest in Bear Tree, for me, is, uh, is an excellent line. And that, that's why it's at the beginning of our show every week.
0: The one that I always really like is actually his first line, um, in From Russia with Love to uh, Colonel Grant when he's finally been unmasked as an enemy agent, and uh, despite the situation, uh, Connery as Bond just goes red wine with fish. I should have told me something.
1: Yeah, I think I'm the same. I'd go back to very early Connery. I think I'd probably his early role in um, Doctor No, where um he he basically is sort of weeding out the assassin, and he goes, um, "That's a standard Smith and Wesson." Um, handgun and you've had your six. I think that's a brilliant, yeah, the delivery of that, the cold-bloodedness of that is is a brilliant delivery.
0: And for the sheer comedy, pretty much anything from Diamonds Are Forever, I must admit. I was just taking my rat for a walk and seemed to have lost my way.
1: Or the the one where he um, announces, well, one of you smells like a tart's handkerchief. I think it's me old boy.
2: That is the tone that Never Say Never Again should have had, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, missed opportunity, perhaps. Um, but that was our key branch for this week. So thank you for everyone everyone has been getting in touch with us on our social media channels. And as ever,
2: you can always get in touch with us with your questions, suggestions and theories. OK, thanks a lot, Phil. So uh, now we move to the final segment of today's episode, which is the quiz.
1: No, 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 no stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond
2: wrong! So I have the honours for today. So uh, today's quiz is called From Bessie to Billy, we're going to look at the songs of James Bond. So I've uh, I've actually stolen these ones from the official 007.com website. uh, So I won't take credit and I also won't be blamed for uh, any poor questions here. (laughs) So uh, maybe we'll start with uh, Adam to begin with. Uh, So you've just got three questions each. We'll go to a tie break if we're still level. So uh, Adam, first question for you. Who composed the James Bond theme?
0: Well, officially Monty Norman.
2: That is correct. Well done, Adam. One point to you. Phil, your first question. Who sung We Have All The Time In The World?
1: That was Louis Armstrong.
2: It certainly was. Some uh, easy questions there to begin with. Back to Adam, your second question. The title song lyrics for GoldenEye were written by who?
0: Ah, OK. Now, was lyrics. Now, I know that Bono and The Edge had a hand in writing that title song, so I'll say Bono and The Edge.
2: That is the correct answer. Well done, Adam. Two points for you. So, Phil, your second question. Who composed the score for Spectre?
1: Oh, I can't remember. See, the the only person I think of is David Arnold, and it's well beyond his
0: realms, but I'm just going to say David Arnold because I can't think.
2: Well, Adam can't steal the points, but uh, Adam, do you want to tell us the answer?
0: Uh, Yeah, Thomas Newman, who also did Skyfall.
2: Indeed, yeah. So uh, over back to you, Adam, now. Your final question for the win... What was the first Bond title song to reach US number one?
0: That was Duran Duran's A View to a Kill.
2: It was. Well done, Adam. Uh, your final question, Phil, would have been uh, Carly Simons' Nobody Does It Better uh, reached which position in the UK chart, uh, third, fifth, or seventh?
1: We say third.
2: It's seventh. So, uh, yeah, Adam would have, uh, would have got the win anyway. So, uh, Adam, you're the winner of today's quiz. What song is going to be our outro?
0: Uh, I was going to go with something silly, but I think as you know, this is Connery once again, and we have lost him recently. Shall we go from the Connery classic Highlander with Queen's Who Wants to Live Forever?
2: Lovely choice. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks for joining us in the cubby hole. As ever, do check out our social media pages—Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter—and uh, also you can get in touch with us, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole at gmail.com, for any specific topics or questions you'd like to ask. But uh, that's it for today's episode. We'll cu- we'll be back uh, next week with the best of Bond, where we'll do our official ranking—the Roger Moore Cubbyholes ranking for all of the official James Bond entries. Uh, but that's it for now. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil.
0: There's no chance for
2: us
1: of um, undercover work is that that why you shouted my name across the courtyard
0: Connery
2: turned Irish there
0: (laughs) (laughs) well this is Father Ted as you say Martin (laughs)